Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders, police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes, amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you. The highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is Copland. This is one of the most important episodes Copland will ever host. It is exactly what this program is about. A story of courage, sacrifice, heartbreak, unimaginable heroism, and eye-opening truth toward training and mental and emotional preparation. Michael Neal is currently the sheriff of Monroe County, Arkansas. On May 20, 2010, he was an Arkansas game and fish officer responding to a call for help following the roadside murder of two West Memphis, Arkansas police officers. And respond he did in a manner and with an attitude that every lawman can be proud of and strive for. Michael was inspired to become a lawman in a most unusual way. Uh, You know, growing up as a kid, my dad uh, opened funeral homes. So we we had the funeral businesses. So we were always around law enforcement. And as a young boy, we had a trooper. His name was Phil Osterman. It was killed in a plane crash, and we had that service. Our, you know, our family had the funeral, and all the troopers come in, and I can remember, and them coming in, and they're all polished, and you know, the boots were shiny, and the honor guards come in, and one of the guys come in uh, needed his gloves dried, so we lived in the funeral home, and he. Um, he needed those gloves dried in the dryer, so I took him up and put them in the dryer for him. And, man, I was probably eight, nine years old. And he took the time to sit there and talk to me. And as a kid, you know, looking at this mountain of a man that was polished to perfection and uh, honor guard uniform, it really had an effect on me. And as I got older, the more I worked with officers and uh, being in the coroner's office, you know, we were on scenes with officers and firefighters, and the more I did it, the the more I wanted to do it. And as soon as I turned 21, you know, I joined the sheriff's department. Uh, spent nine years as a deputy for the Monroe County Sheriff's Department, and then uh, in 07, I went to work for the Arkansas Game and Fish. Spent seven years with them. Uh, won the sheriff's election in 2014, and now I'm the sheriff of the county I started as a reserve at. So uh, it's, it all started for me as a as a young man, you know, at a young age. I was a, I started as a reserve, just riding with guys, you know, riding with troopers or riding with other deputies, and then I, you know, I worked my way up to going full time, uh, being on patrol. Uh, that was a lot of fun, uh, being able to roam anywhere in the county you wanted. Um, 
the life that we have today. I know it was, it, and I'm sure there was a lot of bad things going on in other areas, but in our area, you know, it wasn't, you get your common drunk or a domestic call or something like that, but it, we didn't have the violence, it seems like, that we do today. And this, you know, I'm talking in 'll had an old school mentor who trained him to arrive at conflicts with a strong take charge presence his name was Captain Jack Strickland and he didn't say much he was a real he was a very heavy-handed man um, didn't say a whole lot he was one of those guys that when he walked in the room that uh, he didn't say much you shut up you listen and he kind of he held that persona of wherever he went The key characters in this story start with Bill Evans and Brandon Powder. They were West Memphis police officers. Brandon's father, Bob, was the chief of police in West Memphis. Brandon and Bill were good guys, man. Uh, Brandon had a bright future ahead of him uh, in management of law enforcement. His dad is an unbelievable, um, I don't know, a leader. Uh, I watched his dad as a kid when I lived in Memphis. I, I would see him on the news and never dreamed that I would ever be as close to him as I am now. Uh, Bobby Powder is a, um, he's a cop's cop, man. I mean, he, he, he's been there and done that. He's lived that life. And you're talking about an extreme. 
string leader, and Brandon was walking in those footsteps right behind him. Um, it's so unfortunate that he was taken taken from us and law enforcement because he could have done some great things. And on the other side was Bill. Bill was a tack guy. Bill was a SWAT guy. He was a trainer. He had that personality and that leadership also to teach and forge the fire for for young officers to you know to do this job and it, we lost so much that day it's just unbelievable the criminals in this story were a father and son from ohio jerry and joseph kane who were traveling through arkansas both held the ideology of being sovereign citizens and above the law or government they were they were extremists um you know, they were they were self proclaimed sovereign citizens. Uh, they they kind of felt like and and you know and when you read some of their some of their thinking, um, you can you can almost go down that hole honestly with the way things go in the world. Uh, they they didn't believe in government. They didn't believe in the power of the government. Uh, they didn't believe in taxes and. But they took theirs to an extreme. They were about taking lives. They were about um, power trip on uh, being able to kill at will if they needed to. Uh, Jerry Kane said in one of his interviews that uh, he had an addictive personality and that if he ever started killing cops, he wouldn't be able to stop. Uh, What's weird or kind of ironic about that is uh, Jerry Kane never killed an officer, but he taught his son to. And his son is the one that did the killing. So he mentored that kid. He was 16 years old. Uh, he put the ideology, I'm going to call it, in that kid's brain. Uh, he brainwashed him, and he made him a killer, is what he did. Uh, he taught him all the bad things and the tactics to do it. So he made that boy a ticking time bomb. On May 20, 2010, officers Evans and Powdert conducted a traffic stop of the Kane's vehicle as a part of a narcotics interdiction operation on Interstate 40 in West Memphis. Bill Evans, he, he was working drug interdiction on Interstate 40. Uh, that was a four-man team consisted of uh, Bill Evans, Sergeant Brandon Powder, uh, DJ O'Claire, and I, I can't think of the other officer's name. Um, but they, man, they they were looking for bad guys. That, that's that's what they did. Uh, and I, I use an old game warden term. I, it's they were kicking over rocks looking for snakes. You know, that's what they were trying to do. And he made a traffic stop on a van, just a crummy piece of crap van. Um, you know, we don't have any uh, audio on the videos or anything, but as you watch it, you can kind of see what's going on. And, you know, those drug interdiction officers are good at their job. They they know in the first 10 to 15 seconds of a traffic stop what they've got. And in this traffic stop, it was so weird because everything that the sovereign citizens do is a distraction to an officer. Uh, you know, whether there's they're talking crazy language or they'll say crazy things like, uh, I'm about to 
upon the land. I'm a traveler. I'm not a driver. I don't have to have a driver's license because, you know, all this crazy things or they're trying to record the officers or they're trying to give them their um, A1 priority notice, the FBI adopted their paperwork as sovereign citizens. And you can see in the video, Bill has handed that paperwork and he's so confused by it that he's trying to figure it out. You know, he's trying to go through that paperwork. And that's where they got him. They got him off guard and they got him looking and trying to figure out what's going on. And, uh, man, I encourage guys when I'm out teaching this class that, you know, if they hand you this paperwork, don't look at it. You didn't ask for that. You know, give it back. Stay focused on your task at hand and what they're doing. And you get somebody talking like that, you better be getting some backup pretty quick because you got problems. But that's what happens to Bill, and he's trying to go through the paperwork, and not long after that, uh, Brandon, Sergeant Powder shows up and then they're both going through the paperwork and they have the, the dad out of the vehicle. Uh, they're not paying any attention to the car because, I mean, they both know there's a kid in the car, so there's no threat with a kid. There's two dogs inside the vehicle, so the vehicle's always moving. So the dog's jumping around. While distracted from the threat, Officers Evans and Powdert were ambushed by the teenaged Joseph Kane. Powdert died at the scene, shot 14 times at close range. Evans died a short time later, shot eight times. And then all of a sudden you see the kid climb over the seat and he opens the door. And this is what's very interesting about these videos. And I encourage officers to go watch this, watch the tactics. This kid's going to open the door. Pops the door open, he sticks his head out at the same time, and he waits. He didn't jump out. He waits on his dad, and his dad and him make eye contact. And that's when the fight starts. His dad pushes off and grabs Bill Evans. And that's when the boy comes out and starts firing. The first four rounds the boy fires hit Bill Evans, who's on the ground, because the dad has thrown him on the ground. And Bill starts to roll, trying to get away from the gunfire. And the AK jams. The kid stops, clears the weapon, and re-engages. Now you think about this, this 16-year-old boy that's clearing a weapon in a gunfight. He's clearing a malfunction in a gunfight. He's engaging two officers that are armed, and his dad's in the middle of them. Think about all the dynamics of what's going on here. And he's able to adapt and overcome continue to fight. This kid runs while shooting. He circles to obtain a clear shot and murders both officers. And then they get back in their van and they leave like nothing happened. So as this progresses, officers show up on scene. They start asking for the last vehicle. They had stopped. They can't get into the camera system, so they can't see the vehicle. Uh, the information on the tag of the vehicle comes back to the house of prayer and God out of Ohio. So they immediately start putting out information that you're looking for a church van with a house of prayer and God on the side of it. Uh, we were looking for a old 90s model Dodge minivan is what we were looking for. It was a, a crappy, nasty van. Did not say house of prayer on the side of it. 
didn't say anything on it, actually. It was just a gross, disgusting-looking van. So there was many times this van was overlooked because of wrong information that we were given. And it's a wonder more of us, you know, weren't killed in this situation. Michael Neal was on patrol an hour away from the scene when the call went out for officers needing assistance. His actions and reactions put an end to one of the worst days of law enforcement carnage in history. I was on patrol that day for the game and fish. I was about an hour, a little over an hour away. I was in Moro, Arkansas, which is kind of southwest of uh, West Memphis. When the call went out, officers down. Uh, being a game warden, you know, we're state officers. We have state jurisdiction. Uh, the county they were in was Crittenden County, which is West Memphis. That was in my district, which was actually in the post that I was assigned to. So when that kind of call goes out, everybody goes, especially with a manhunt ensuing. Uh, so I stopped my truck when I got the call, and I started preparing myself. I got my body armor out that was in the back. I put it on, and I grabbed my rifle, loaded, made ready, and hung it on my chest. And I got back in my truck, and I started driving. Should have been about an hour drive. <laughs> I make a joke of it. It took me about 45 minutes because I had souped up my game and fish truck, and it would, it would scoot. I uh, got into town. Uh, realized that I was almost out of gas, so I had to pull into a gas station to get gas. Uh, the total amount of time that I was in town was 15 minutes from start to finish. I uh, pulled into the gas station, didn't realize where I'd stopped. This is one of those humbling moments of your life. Uh, God has a way of kind of grabbing a hold of you and shaking you and waking you up, telling you it's time to pay attention. And this is one of those moments. I pulled into the gas station. I jumped out of my truck. I'm trying to gas up as quickly as possible. Um, I look up. I didn't realize where I stopped. I, I stopped at the 275-mile marker. And 200 yards behind that gas station, laid the bodies of two officers that got up that morning and did the same thing I did. They put on their gun and their badge, and they went to war kissed their families goodbye, and they didn't go home. So that was one of those kind of a gut check moments that I really needed at the moment, because if you know me, you you know how spacey I am, and a little ADD, and kind of bounce off the walls most of the time, but it really, it really focused me. It really made me mad, honestly. But I was able to use that anger use it as momentum and I got in that truck and I drove over that crime scene over the overpass and I looked at it and man it lit a fire in me I hope I never have again but I turned and went down the service road and I was driving and I remember looking at vehicles and had my hand on my rifle and I'll never forget it I hear it in my sleep or used to be really bad I don't, not so much anymore but the call went out on the radios, and the dispatcher, she said, I need available units to 798 West Service Road, Walmart. Suspects are spotted in Road 12. And as that call was going out, I looked up, and I'm driving right by Walmart. 
time I meet an unmarked unit. It was a blue Crown Vic that went by me. And he pulled in one end of the parking lot, and I pulled in the other end. And when he pulled in, I'm sure he probably wasn't thinking. He was probably thinking the same thing I was, that this was one of 5,000 calls we were going to go on that day, but this wasn't them. You know, there was no reason for them to be there. Well, we were both wrong. That vehicle had the sheriff of Crittenden County, Dick Busby, and his chief deputy, W.A. Wren. As they pulled into the parking lot, the van come off Road 12, and they made a head-on traffic stop. And you'll see that on the, the surveillance video of Walmart. Those two officers were retired Arkansas State Police. Uh, they were set to retire December 31st, 2010, as sheriff and chief deputy. So they were at the end of their careers. Both of them were shot immediately in their car. W.A. Wren took four rounds of AK-47 to the abdomen, was not wearing a vest, and the sheriff took one round of Colt 45 through his shoulder. So as they're being shot, I'm on the other end of the parking lot coming in, and I see this. I see, I see them being shot and in the game and fish they taught us tactics they taught us a lot of tactics that were probably unusual for most law enforcement because everybody we dealt with had some kind of a killing device so they really pushed us on firearms and they taught us in the academy to shoot through our windows they started that back in the late 90s shooting through the windshields so I knew as I was coming in what I was going to do. I knew it would work. So I look up. I see the gunman standing outside the vehicle. I pull my rifle up, and I thought, he doesn't know I'm back here. I'm going to come in from behind, and I'm, I'm going to shoot, shoot him through the windshield. So as I'm driving, as I'm coming in, they hear me. He gets back in the vehicle and starts to back up. Now, estimated speed is about 55 miles an hour here. And if you ever go to that parking lot, it's very small. That was pretty high speed. There was a lot of things happened very fast in, in this process. So as I'm coming in, he starts to back up. And I remember thinking, no, we're not going to do this. As he starts to back up, I thought, I'm going to hit you. I've got to disable the van. You're not getting out of this parking lot. And at the last second, he turns the van, and I thought, here we go. I got you. And I hit him. Like I said, the state police estimates about 55 miles an hour. Now, I was not wearing a seatbelt. My airbags did not deploy. If either one of those had been in play, it would probably be a different interview for you to the second. <laughs> as soon as we hit the driver turns with what I now know as a Taurus judge. Uh, at the time, it looked like an RPG. You're looking down the barrel. We were about seven feet from one another. He was at the end of the hood of my pickup. I'm pushed into the side of him. And that's where I fired my first two rounds were about the center of the windshield. I guess the impact had knocked me over onto my console. That's where I started firing from. I fired the first two rounds, striking him in the head. He was immediately out of the fight. The passenger pivots in his seat. 
I never saw him, uh, and he engaged. And auditory exclusion in a gunfight is real. I never heard my gun. I never heard his gun. I can still hear the popping sounds of the rounds coming into my truck and my buffer spring in my rifle, which is weird. I can still hear the, the ching, 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 ching as I was shooting. He engages and starts on my be my left-hand side of the windshield, the driver's side, and starts walking it across. And I was getting hit with the, the fragments from the glass and the dashboard and the jacket of the bullets were hitting me down my left side and in my face. And all I could think is, shoot faster. you got to shoot faster. And I couldn't see him. All I could see was the fire from his gun. I knew he had to be on the other end of it. And that's where I emptied 28 rounds into that area. I remember the, the bolt locking back on the rifle. And I'm still taking incoming rounds and thinking, oh, this, this is it. You know, this is, this is one of those times that you're not going to get your stuff out of this one. And then that will to live takes over. And that fight kicks back in. And I put that truck in reverse and I held it to the floor because I couldn't reload that rifle. You know, that's, that's why I train this now. That's why I teach this all over the country. It's so important because in a gunfight, you're either going to rise to your level of training or you're going to fall. And that's on you. Well, that day I fell because I'd never trained with that rifle how to reload it in the truck under high stress, taking incoming rounds. So I couldn't get it done. That tool wasn't in that tool belt. So I did the next best thing. That put it reversed, and I reversed out. That's where you see me. I did some free landscaping for Walmart, and I cleaned their bushes out for them, and then some woman backed up and hit me, and I hit her. So that's my story. I'll stick to that one. That's actually a joke. I, I hit the parked car. <laughs> um, you'll see me exit the truck. I transition to my pistol. As I roll out of my truck, uh, officers behind me fired a shotgun round that went right by my head, almost shot me in the face, scared me to death. I rolled out and I ran behind my truck. And I was checking myself for bleeding. I had a, a gash to the forehead. I had glass in my left eye, blew my eardrum my left-hand side, shrapnel down my left side. I was hurting. I was bleeding, trying to figure out if I had been shot. Um, one of the guys who worked for Crittenden County, his name's Nick James. Uh, he's a big guy. Thank God he's on our side. He picked me up off the ground and shook me, screaming at me, asked me if I was okay. And I thought, told him I thought I'd been hit. And he checked me and he said, no, you're fine. And he grabbed me and he said, said let's re-engage. And as I went by my truck, I grabbed my rifle out, loaded, made ready, and we went up and cleared the van and made the scene safe. So it was very chaotic. Um, rattled my cage pretty good. You know, I took a pretty good head injury. Hitting the, uh, I had a laptop death in the truck that I hit my head on. So it was, there was a lot going on. It was, it was, uh, it was a very, crazy probably I think a 17 second gunfight is what it turned out to be uh, but that's a long time when you got bullets flying by your head 
If even possible, this story becomes more tragic. Brandon Powdert's father, Bob, the West Memphis chief of police, had just spoken to his son moments before. Chief Powdert was off-duty at the time of the shooting with his wife in the car. When he responded to the shooting, he found his son murdered on the side of the road. Uh, Bobby and his wife, Linda, were on their way out of town. Uh, Miss Linda had uh, open-heart surgery a couple weeks before this and was pretty sick, uh, was trying to recover. They had made the decision, this was Thursday, May the 20th, 2010, and they were going to take a long weekend. They were leaving Thursday morning, uh, and Brandon and his family were going to come up. They had a, a lake house up in Missouri. He was coming up Friday night. They were supposed to spend the weekend there in the, at the lake house. Um, he had just talked to the team. They had stopped and was watching a U-Haul van and all this stuff. And the last thing that, uh, that Bobby, I believe, and I don't, don't quote me on this, was he told them to quit messing around and y'all get back to work. Go make something happen. Uh, and the team left that that incident and, and the, the shooting occurred. But I believe that was one of the last things he said to his son. But when the call went out, shot fired officers down. Uh, there was no other traffic on the radio other than that. So Bobby felt like it was had to have been the highway patrol or state troopers or you know something like that. And when he showed up on scene, he said he was very confused. He didn't understand. There wasn't any trooper cars. You know, it was it was his cars. And he got out and ran down the side of the interstate. And there was officers huddled around, and they were saying, "Bill, you're going to be okay." And he said, "I knew then that was Bill Evans." He said, as I was running down, I saw somebody lay inside their car, and I didn't understand why nobody was with that officer beside the car. And he turned, and he went to walk up the hill, and the uh, one of the captains tried to stop him and said, don't go up there, Chief, that's bad. And he pushed him out of the way, and that's, that's where he found his oldest son executed, shot three times to the head with an AK-47. And you can, you can see the light drain out of that man on video uh he said you know i was i was confused he said i didn't i didn't know what to do as as a father i didn't know what to do uh, as the chief he said i was really lost um, and then miss linda's in the truck and she realizes something's going on and she gets out and it's a very chaotic scene and very heartbreaking uh, but the power in that man and the resilience in that man is unbelievable. Uh, this guy travels the U.S. just like I do to tell the same story, and he covers the whole other side of it. He covers the uh, the, the sovereign citizens, and he talks about his son's death. Um, and the reason he does that is to wake officers up and teach them about the risk and the dangers of this group so they can live if they ever encounter them. And if you ever get a chance to hear Bobby Powder, I highly recommend it. He is uh, such a great guy. It's just, he's unbelievable. God provides all of us a purpose. Michael Neal learned that one of his was to be at that place, at that time, fully prepared to confront the murderers of his fellow officers. Well, I was, I was born in 
been a Christian home, you know. My my mother and father had anytime church doors were open, we were there. So that's always been a part of my life. And like you said, it, there's no reason for me to be alive other than the fact that he has other things for me to do. And, you know, at life 10 years later after that shooting is a lot different. Um, you know, there's there's days I would wake up and I wouldn't want to get out of the bed. I, I still have those to this day. I mean, that's just part of living with PTSD. But, you know, it's a, it's a scary thought. One day I was running down the road thinking, and I started putting all the pieces together of of my life. You know, I always wanted to be a trooper, and I never could be a trooper. It was like every time that I tried to open that door, it closed. Um, and then I got hired as a game warden. I didn't even know what a game warden was. I didn't hunt. I didn't fish. I didn't know anything. But when you stop and you look at all those doors, the way they opened and closed, they led up to May the 20th. And that was kind of my purpose was that day, was to be there. You know, that's everybody has a purpose in life. And you got to find that purpose. But the scary part of that is when you're sitting there and you realize how all that led up to May the 20th. And you say, oh, my gosh, you know, this is, that was my purpose. I had to be there. The scary part's now what? Now what I did? You know, that's come and gone now. You know, you, you you spared me that day. Now, now what do I have to do? And I believe it's training. I believe it's telling the story. Uh, you know, I've, I've created a training company um, where I take guys out and, and we shoot up cars. We shoot through cars. We fight around cars. And I train them not to make the mistake that I made in that shooting. So they can live to see their family. They can live to see the next day. And then... We cover the part, the dirty part, the ugly part. Because when you go through the academy, they teach you everything you need to know about the job and how to deal with it. What they don't teach you is how to deal with it when you have to do your job, when you have to take that life. And that's what we cover. I have guys that come in and talk about it. They've been through things. They've been through shootings, just like I have. And that have had to take those lives. And now they they come in and tell their story on how they deal with it, how they dealt with life afterwards. Just like I do. You know, I had a lot of dark days. I had a lot of problems. You know, and then I didn't even realize at the time. I didn't even realize I was having problems. You know, I didn't realize the person I turned into. But, you know, it, due to my faith and background you know I've, I've been able to make it through it michael neal's story is captured as a part of the film heroes behind the badge the vehicle he drove that day is part of the national law enforcement museum in washington dc and in 2012 he was awarded the congressional medal of valor michael leaves us with a lesson that was drove home the day of the west memphis shootings my lessons learned in, in all of my law enforcement career and the shootings that I've been involved in is you never take any day for granted. Um, you, you're, not, you're not guaranteed the next breath. Uh, you never know when that day's going to come. It's going to come for all of us eventually. But uh, don't get caught up in the things you can't change. You know, be 
mindful of those things, but don't get bogged down in those things. Um, you have to protect yourself in this job and any job and life, it, you know, of its own. You have to protect yourself mentally. And that's, I would say that would be my lesson learned is I didn't do that for a long time. And it caused a lot of problems, but you've really got to keep yourself sharp mentally and, and, and look for the good things in life. And that'd be my lessons learned. Look for the good things in life. In addition to his sheriff's duties, Michael Neal conducts law enforcement training, a continuation of his purpose in life. You can reach Michael and receive his training course through the website nftraining.org. Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless and go be amazing.